we're starting ourselves a new series. When I used to play, <coughs> this is in my way. Beck, got too much energy for that to be over here. That's better. I don't know if you've ever played a team sport. I used to play rugby and uh, uh, used to, key, key term there, used to uh, be fit enough to play rugby. And I remember one time the, uh, uh, the Ford Pack had uh, gotten ourselves a, a favourable penalty uh, by forcing a, uh, a mistake on the op opponent's uh, 10 metre line, meaning uh, uh, the, that breaks down to we're really close to the try line and we were going to be able to uh, uh, take a Ford run off the back of the scrum punched down the uh, uh, blind side, and that was our go-to move. We always want to try doing that. We had enormous Islanders, and then me in the Ford pack, so we were pretty well equipped. And, and so there it was. The scrum was packed. We won the scrum. It went back, and as my usual play would be, as the, as, uh, the fellas were taking it to the blind side, I would step out to the, to the uh, open side and play, play a bit of decoy defense. And what, what the Ford pack didn't know was that the, the real hungry try scorers, the backs had actually devised another plan. Now, the captain of the team was a back. So guess what? The backs got the ball. And little did I know that as I stood out to the side of the scrum, I actually stood square in the way of a fly half running about 50 kilometers an hour, collecting the ball off the uh, scrum half, pelted into my back, fumbled the ball, lost the play. The other team uh, then took it and started running. Other than my own comedic embarrassment, the, the point is that I didn't know, the Ford Pack didn't know, we were not in great communication. We didn't know what play was being played there on the field. And because of that, we weren't able to join it, we weren't able to uh, uh, help with it, we weren't able to see what was going on, we misread the field, uh, and, and therefore, uh, things didn't go according to plan. And we as a church, any church and every church, every generation of the church, every local church, needs to be able to know from Scripture and discern from God's Word what kind of plays God employs in the world to achieve His purposes. And when we understand them, we are best fit and more able to join them and put our hand to those plays. If we misunderstand them, if we, if we aren't aware of the kinds of things and kinds of ways that God employs to build His kingdom, then sometimes we get in the way or we don't join it, or I think worse yet, we read the field and think we're losing. We don't realize that he is actually running a play to conquer the world. We're going to go to the book of Acts today, <coughs> and this is going to be our 11-part series, a study on how God, the triune God of salvation, accomplishes his purposes in history. So we're asking the question, the Father, the Father, how does he, what's, what particular and specific ways has he ordained and has he inscribed in Scripture for us to learn that he builds the kingdom of his Son? As Jesus has been elevated and seated at the Father's right hand and he promised that he would build the church and the gates of hell would not stand against it, what ways particularly does Jesus build the church through? That's our, that's our study over the next 11 weeks. What ways does the book of Acts show us as the, the really the only church history given to us that is inspired by the Holy Spirit? What ways do we see God building the kingdom of his son? What ways do we see Jesus building his church? And I want you to be in the mindset of thinking of this as we start out today. The book of Acts is the divine conquest of the promised land. The divine conquest of the promised land. You're probably familiar with the Old Testament conquest of the promised land as I use that language. Hopefully the book of Joshua comes up in your mind. The, the, that whole book is, is in its context. It's right after Moses' death. Moses redeemed the people by God's hand. Moses saved the people. Moses baptized the people, the New Testament will say, through the Red Sea. He, he sanctified the people with the blood and the covenant. He taught the people. He was a prophet for the people, but he was not allowed to enter the land. And he was God's mouthpiece for saying to the Israelites, God has promised to your father Abraham and to you his descendants the land that is now beyond the Jordan River that we are now commanded, you are commanded to go over and possess it. The promises have been made. It's the promised land to us. The only thing left is to go and take it. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 32, sorry, 31, verse 3 through verse 6. Uh, and, and this is Moses speaking on behalf of God to the Israelites now. And, and picture Joshua, that was Jesus' Hebrew name, by the way, Joshua standing there at Moses' right hand. And he says, The Lord your God himself will go over before you. 
He will destroy these nations before you so that you shall dispossess them and Joshua will go over at your head as the Lord has spoken. Verse 5. And the Lord will give them over to you and you shall go to them and do to them according to the whole commandment that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. This was the Old Testament conquest of the promised land. As Joshua, the head of the people, after salvation and redemption and atonement and sanctification had all been accomplished through Moses, now Joshua was to lead them in conquest. Friends, the book of Acts is the New Testament book of Joshua. Jesus Christ has sanctified, has blessed, has baptized, has redeemed us from slavery to sin. And then he, like Moses, but not because of his own sin like Moses, but Jesus in God's sovereign plan said that he would not stay with us. In fact, it was better that he go than that he remain. Because the, the Jesus is both Moses and he's Joshua. And now he is at our head, leading the disciples through to the conquering of the promised land for, not Moses now, not not even Abraham now, but the Lord Jesus himself, for God. Jesus, in the book of Acts, is leading his people on a divine conquest for the promised land. But what's the promised land? You might think, yeah, well, the promised land, that's that's language for Judah and Israel, the, the whole strip along the Mediterranean there, right? And No, you're thinking of the wrong promise. If we're talking about the the promised land that was promised to Abraham, you're correct. If we're talking about the the promise made to Moses about a nation sanctified for God in the promised land, yes, you're correct. That's Israel. If if we're talking about David and the kingdom that he was promised, yes, that's right. That that was was the, the land promised unto the Israelites as their portion. But we're not talking about the old covenant promises. We're talking about the new covenant promises, not the promises made to Abraham, Moses, and David, but the promises made to Jesus. The question is, what promised land is promised to Jesus for his inheritance? The answer is very simple. That Psalm chapter 2, verse 8, the Father says to the Son, ask of me and I will give you the nations. Which ones? Them all. All of them. The nations to you as your inheritance. The world is the promised land for the Messiah that his people must now go and conquer. We also see this in Matthew 28, don't we, that Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go disciple the nations, make disciples of all nations, and I will be with you until the end of the age, just as as the commission of Moses sounded, didn't it? He will not leave you or forsake you. And Jesus says, I will be with you to the end of the age. Or as we look in Acts chapter 1, look down in your Bible at Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, you have the Israelites who have just asked Jesus, will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? And it's as if he frustratedly thinks to himself, they're still thinking too small. They're still thinking about the old covenant promised land, not the new covenant Messiah's promised land. And he says in verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is now Jesus commissioning his people, commissioning his children, his, his disciples, his army, his new nation to the conquering of the whole promised land, which is the world. And the book of Acts gives us the explosion of the gospel. As soldiers for Christ, in Ephesians 6 language, put on the armor of God, take the sword of the Spirit, and take the land for the Lord Jesus Christ. That that is that they conquer spiritual enemies, they make disciples of lost souls, and they build the church by the Holy Spirit. Can you look with me in our chapter 2? As this whole idea of the book of Acts... As this whole way of thinking about the church in her mission, and we need to think about that accurately or we will misread the plays, we will get in the way of our great captain. Thinking about the church in this context, in the book of Acts, makes immediate 
and extreme sense when we realize that what Peter says in his first sermon, that day of Pentecost, is that the last days, or the days of the Messiah, have now come. Last year, we did a 10-part series and a breakdown and re-preaching of all of the great sermons in the book of Acts. I encourage you to go and find that on our YouTube and listen. I say that because I'm not going to be able to go into as much depth in the actual accounts of the day, in what happened there at Pentecost with all of the the miracles and whatnot uh, today. We've done that in the past, but it's not the the focus point of our study this morning. The study that we will be taking is is the words and the points that Peter makes in his sermon. So look down at uh, verse 14 of chapter 2. And this is where we have seen the disciples having received the Holy Spirit of power so that they can now do the mission of conquest that Christ has ordained them for. And they speak in their tongues and there's the rushing wind and there's flames above their head and people accuse them of being drunk, misunderstanding what they see. And in verse 14, Peter says, Standing with the eleven, he lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And on your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and the female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Peter stands up on Pentecost Day, and his first go-to moment, like we do, is to open up a scroll, do an Old Testament reading, and then start preaching. But what he just said to them on that day is something that is extremely shocking to both his readers and I'm sure to us. Because if we were to go and read Joel chapter 2, we would go and read it in its context and read what it says and read it in the original language and all of that, we would be no more helped, only more confused according to what Peter said today. Because we would read the book of Joel and think that this is, is truly something that, that, that is a worldwide, a, a cosmic, a destructive prophecy of something where the sun is disappearing, the moon is turning to a coagulated clot of blood in the sky, there is miracles written for us in smoke in the heaven. What are we to think of this? And Peter, in the most shocking of ways, as the authoritative interpreter of the Old Testament, the Spirit-filled Peter says, this is what was prophesied by the prophet Joel. What you're seeing today is what was prophesied. This is that. Peter is telling them authoritatively by the Spirit, when you read Joel chapter 2, don't wonder what the explanation or application or fulfillment is. The answer is this. May 28, 30 AD, Jerusalem, Pentecost. That's what Joel was prophesying. Because Peter says, this is that. The Spirit poured out all types of people around them now, not just the anointed holy men, but but all the people that were gathered there, the 120 Christians who had followed the resurrected Christ, all of them now extolling Jesus in magnificent tongues, souls were being saved, and the church being birthed. That is what Joel was prophesying. Now, if our... That little hearing of that is that, no, I think Joel was prophesying something more exciting than that. Then we just don't think significantly about the reality of what was unfolding there on that cosmic day in redemptive history at Pentecost. We've just stood right in front of the fly half as he is screaming towards the triline. If you're looking for something more exciting than the birth of Jesus' church, 
So the church is in conquest. And everything that Joel prophesied is coming true because, and here's what we'll see now, everything Joel just prophesied is coming true because, Peter is saying, we are in those last days. Look at what he says in, in verse 15, uh, 16. And in fact, it's before he, uh, uh, sorry, verse 17. He's just said, this is what was prophesied by the prophet Joel. And what does the prophet Joel prophesy? He says, and in the last days it shall be. Now, before we get to what it shall be, what he's just said is already so jarring. Peter says, I, I hope you're following. Peter says, this is what Joel prophesied. And then he quotes Joel as saying something about the last days, which means that Peter is saying, sitting there at Pentecost Sunday, May 28, 30 AD, this is officially stamping in your calendars the last days prophesied by the Old Testament prophets sent from God. This is what he prophesied, and he prophesied the last days. <coughs> it's going to be entirely lost on us because we may think that the last days are just a few weeks or days or the last day. Like, isn't it literally meaning the last 24-hour period before everything ends? And of course, that would be a mistake to think so. When he is telling them that the last days have come, in all of the, the Old Testament language that, that points to the last days, what he's telling them is that the Messiah has come, because that's something that only happens in the last days. He's telling them that the holy place has been anointed because Daniel says it happens in the last days. That, that sacrificial atonement has been made and sins are made an end of. That's what happens in the last days, Peter. Surely not all of that has happened. The kingdom of the Messiah has been established. That all happens in the last days in the Jewish mindset. They, they sort of had a two-chapter view of all of world history. The Jewish theology was that there was two chapters to world history. This age creation, all of world history, and then the age to come, when God is with man, when the Messiah comes and recreates everything, this age and then the eternal age, this age and then the age to come. And Peter doesn't so much entirely disagree with that idea as to just make a few tweaks on where each age ends and starts. The reality is that being in that last days in the Christian mindset is as Peter will tell us, that, that the old age is still going. I mean, are we still in the fallen creation? And I have to ask you again for that one. I, I, I want to make sure we're listening. Are we still in the fallen old age? Yeah, absolutely. And then Peter is saying, though, that we are now in the age to come, the last days, so that, so that we need to realize that since the coming of Jesus Christ and his resurrection... He has both marked the ending of this age and the beginning of the age to come. Between Jesus coming the first time and Jesus coming the second time, we now live in a glorious overlap where the age that Adam lost is now fading away and the age that Jesus Christ has inaugurated is now taking full flight. There is a day that Jesus will come back and this is what we call consummation. It has been inaugurated the last days in Jesus' first coming. It will be consummated in the last moment in Jesus' return. But in this great overlap, we, we are in the old age. And yet the new age is breaking through and pressing into this world. That is what Peter so, so shockingly says to his hearers that day. This is the last days. And, and they, they, if they're hearing that, and he just keeps on going. But, but as he, they're hearing that, they would be thinking and they would, they would want to ask Peter in their little post-sermon Bible study, I, are you saying then, if we're in the last days, that, that salvation has been accomplished entirely, reconciliation fulfilled? Yes, Peter would say, absolutely. Yet there's still much to be applied. Are you saying, by saying we're already in the last days, that, that the kingdom of the Messiah has started? Yes, and yet all enemies are not yet at his feet. Are you saying that, that, that everything has been brought back to God? Yes, and yet we don't quite see that. There is a process to unfold. Are you saying that sin has been entirely removed from the people of God? Yes, at the cross. And yet our bodies still hold much of the old 
man. Yes, it has all started. It is not all finished yet. This is what Peter is telling his people when he says right there in verse 16, this is what Joel said, and what Joel said is something about the last days. Everything the Messiah has accomplished, in other words. Everything the Messiah has accomplished is now breaking through with power. So so now do you see Peter's urgency and the significance of the moment in redemptive history? Pentecost can never repeat again. We, We pray for the Spirit. We never pray for Pentecost. That is blasphemous. To pray for the Pentecost is to pray for the birth of the church. To pray for another Pentecost is to pray that Jesus would start his kingdom all over again. To to pray for Pentecost is a confusion and a blasphemy. We thank God for Pentecost because there, the great salvation, the kingdom, the power, the spirit of Jesus is being poured out to his covenant people. This makes perfect sense that Joel, prophesying vaguely, would say things like, the world's on fire, there's smoke going everywhere, the sun's gone, the moon is blood, there's miracles all over the place. Yeah, this is prophetic language, for everything is changing. The old way is going. The new ways are breaking through. Look at verse 21. As we, as we realize, we, we just reset ourselves again. The book of Acts is a history of the conquest of the church for Christ. And the Holy Spirit comes, as Jesus says, with power so that they will be the witnesses, so that they will go and be on conquest. And this is what she does since she's in the last days, since the Spirit has been poured out. She charges, she marches, she preaches, she lives and dies to proclaim the message of Joel's last verse in his prophecy in verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Is that a glorious prophecy or what? And therefore, that is exactly what Peter does. Since we're in the last days, since everything accomplished by the Messiah, since everything prophesied about the Messiah has now been accomplished and just needs to be applied, therefore we preach all who call on his name will be saved. So sit down, step back, and let Peter preach. Look at verse uh, verse 22. He preaches the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Look at verse 20. Uh, uh, 32. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Theologians break down the the ministry of Jesus Christ into four parts. His life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And they all are so integral, so important for our salvation. In his life, we speak of his, his perfect Sinless, God-made-man life. That he never sinned like Adam sinned. He never sinned like we sinned. He was born of a virgin by the miracle of God so that he would be kept clean and pure from the original and inherited sin that we all share in. We are sinners by nature and by willful choice as we pursue our passions and pleasures. But Jesus was born pure of that original sin. And then himself never fell into sin of his own. He was a perfect man. And verse 22 tells us that that was symbolized to everybody. That was shown and proved to the people of his generation by the works that God did through him. 
the raising of people, the, the answer to every prayer he prayed, the casting out of the demons, the, 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 the miracles of walking on the water and the, the power over all that, all of that was attesting the fact that Jesus was God in flesh and perfect man, in perfect approval under God's law. So verse 22 says that. Peter literally preaches the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. There's his life. Perfect, sinless life where he lived with a record that God demanded of us though we could never do. And then his death. Verse 23. This man... This perfect man, this man proven and attested to us by God, <coughs> verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This, this Jesus who came and was among us and was so perfect, was so powerful, so, so proven by God, he was sent by God's definite, absolute plan and foreknowledge to die. He was given as the Lamb of God for the sacrifice on the divine altar. His blood was pure so that it could be shed. His life was perfect so that it could replace yours on the altar. And yet, yet you men who killed this Jesus have no excuse simply because it was God's plan. You killed him. You crucified him by sending him to the Romans under the guise of a lie. And he died at your hands, is what Peter says. There's Jesus' life. There's Jesus' death, where he became for us a penal substitutionary atonement. In other words, he, though perfect in his own life, was given the sins of all of his people so that he could discharge them, so that he could pay for them, so that he could die for them in our place and for our sins before the Father. So he himself was purely perfect. And then Peter says that God raised this lamb. God raised this Jesus up in verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs, loosing the, the pains, the thorns, the chains that held in death because it was not possible that he would be held by it. I love that. I love that Peter doesn't just think that it was nice that God raised him from the dead. It was a really good gesture since he did just pay for all his people, let him get back up, uh, prove a few things to his friends, really stick it to Judas, show Thomas that he was wrong, and, 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 and get, let him have a body so he can go and punch Peter on the shoulder after all those denials. Get him up. Was it just a happenstance? Jesus had to sit on the throne with some kind of body, so may as well give him a, a body back. No. It was literally impossible that the Messiah would stay dead. Two reasons. The nature of the law, the power of God's faithfulness. Jesus, having discharged all of our sins, which were the only sins on him, have no, he had no sins left there in the grave. And we are told that the power of the law to kill us is our sin. If, if you have no arms, one positive I can think of in your life, and I'm trying really hard, if you have no arms, you can't get handcuffed. At least one positive. How powerless handcuffs are on a guy with no arms. And in the very same way, stretching that analogy, I know. And yet, and yet sin is that which holds on to sin. Sorry, death is that which holds on to sin. Without sin, you can't be held on to by death, and Jesus was without sin and therefore able to flee. Death was unable to hold him. But, but secondly, the, the power of that statement, it was impossible that death would be held by him, is exactly what Peter goes on to quote from the Old Covenant. It's impossible that he was held by death because his father had promised him he would not be held by death. Nothing is more certain than the fact that when God promises, it happens. When God speaks to things that don't exist, they exist just to hear him. When Jesus speaks to Lazarus and says, get out here, and he has no ears to even hear, the universe, hearing its creator, quickly gives him blood and life in ears so that he can hear and obey. When light doesn't exist, when the universe doesn't exist, but the Father says, let there be light, and he created the heavens and the earth, 
those things become reality because of his promise. And when the father had said in Psalm 16, prophesying through David, that the Holy One would not be left in the grave long enough to start corrupting, to start rotting, to see corrosion, then it's impossible that he would be in the grave longer than the appointed time. And therefore God raised him up. It was impossible that Jesus stayed dead. He had no sin. The Father had promised it. And there he was raised. And yet there's more. Down in verse 32, Peter then applies, this Jesus God raised up, not David who prophesied it, not any of our other kings, this Jesus God raised up. (coughs) And of that, we are all witnesses, the 120 standing there with Peter, we're all witnesses, and being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the Holy Spirit, he's poured out this which you yourselves are seeing and hearing. There's the ascension, the life, the death, The resurrection, the ascension to the throne are all vital parts of the gospel message that we proclaim. Because from being resurrected, Jesus then went and sat down at the promised throne which the Father had made for him. From where he would rule and reign over history to bring all things back to his Father and to build his church and extend his kingdom. Peter believed in the life, the death, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ as the focal point of the last days. Since it's the last days, he's saying, since what Joel prophesied has now started to burst forth like a dam, therefore believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look further down in the passage as he comes to to apply in verse 37. Uh, Sorry, in verse 38. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself and with many other words he bore witness. This is the application. If if ever you're feeling like I'm just not there in my theology to quite grasp the whole point of the two-age paradigm and and the prophesied last days and the the kingdom of the Messiah and how much is future and how much is past and how much relates to the old and the new covenant, if that's all far too confusing for you, then just hear this. Since the last days are upon us, get preaching Jesus. That's what the people of God do in the days of the Messiah. And friends, that's what you must do if you are not yet believing this message. If you're still outside of Christ, if you still deny those things, if you're still living in your sins, then Peter's command on the back end of all of this glorious truth, the purposes of God have now culminated in Christ. And what are you supposed to do about that? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived in your place, who died in your place, who rose to give you eternal life and is now sitting in heaven pouring out the Holy Spirit to those who believe. That's what the last days are all about. That's what the church's mission is all about. Every single sermon that we do in this uh, Acts series, we're going to be focusing on or doing a little study of one of the ways that God grows his church. One of the ways or one of the means, one of the, the, the primary uh, tools that God uses in his building of the kingdom of Christ. In other words, all the different ways that God uses and does things to the church so that souls are saved and brought into the church. We'll look at fellowship, we'll look at missions, we'll look at evangelism, we'll look at persecution and all the ways that God uses those things and tells us about it so that when we see them, we can join them. When we're thinking about the future of the church, we can pray for them. But today's specific topic is preaching. The fact that the preached word is that primary tool in the expansion of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. The second Helvetic confession, one of the Reformed confessions in uh, the 1600s says, preaching of the word of God is the word of God. Preaching of the word of God is the word of God. Doesn't mean the preacher is always speaking the word of God. 
doesn't mean as long as he calls it a sermon, you have to receive it as the word of God. What it's meant is this. They believed so, so, so truly, so, so scandalously in the purposes of God in his church that when a man anointed for the task by a local church stands up and rightly exegetes scripture and explains and applies it, what you are experiencing there is the word of God enlivened by the Holy Spirit. Where there's error, it's not the word of God. Where there's, there's falsehood being promoted or, or applied, not the word of God. But where the preacher aligns with the word of God and speaks it, he's like a bullet in the gun of the Holy Spirit. It is propelled to our hearts as the word of God. We, we might feel like that's just a little bit too, too heretical because we want to believe, no, it's, it's just the book, it's just the words, it's just the lines. When I read it, then it's the Word of God. But that would really be to be quite historically uh, ignorant. It really is not until the last few generations. Maybe we can push back to the, to the Reformation time when the printing press made it possible for homes and even individuals to have all of their own Bibles, but for most of church history, the Bible has been a public proclaimed and read tool. Really, there has been very little individual reading of it over the course of history. At least now it's a great and glorious thing. I hope we all have a great study Bible that we read in our homes and our families and individually and pray over, but know that the primary way all through the Old Testament, in the New Testament days, and most of church history, the primary way the Bible was given to the church to be used was to be a public proclamation, reading, and explanation. The preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. Preaching is God's favorite means to bring sinners to Himself. It's not an old-fashioned thing, a, a, a leftover part of some... Uh, 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 old style, old fashioned where, where blokes stand up on a stage and we all sit down. No, no, not at all. Preaching has always been God's primary ways, way to bring sinners to himself. Theologian Tuckney says, preaching is the normal means of conversion to salvation. I love hearing that to those you evangelize and to those you share a tract with, and to those you work with, and to those children you live with who don't know the Lord, to hear that you are speaking of them, to them of salvation and that you invite them to church. It's not a magic place where, where, where it is the only place that people can be saved, but preaching is the primary, I, I like to say, God's favorite way of saving sinners. It's the mode and the means and the occasion that God uses most frequently to save people. The, the history of Reformation and Revival you can look through all of church history, study every revival and every point of great reformation, what they were, uh, all that that really is, is the history of the preached word of God. When it is allowed to fly, powerful effects follow. But, but preaching is not simply powerful in itself. In itself, it's just a guy made of dust standing up and speaking to other people made up of cells and blood and, uh, and that's about it. My, the, the sound waves that I make go into your little ugly ear hole and float around a bit and touch the mushy part of your head. That's all that preaching is in itself. But in as much as that preaching is explaining the gospel, Paul calls it a clay made of jar that can break at any moment and is entirely worthless except in it has the infinite and eternal treasures of God. That's what preaching is. Not powerful in itself, but ordained of God for the purpose of winning souls. Now I've got, I've got seven quick points, seven quick little theological reasons as to why preaching is so appropriately God's favorite way of saving sinners as the church is on conquest. First of all, it's because of the personal, communicable, communicative, nature of God himself. God is eternally triune. Three persons in one God, meaning that for as long as God has been God, which is all eternity, he has been talking among the members of himself. Now, not with words like we would think them and not with speech, but communication, truth, will, heart, love between one another. He is an eternally speaking, communicating, personal God. And so preaching is appropriate. Secondly, 
All of the creative acts of God in history, at creation and onwards, are accomplished through his words, through his speech. From creation at Genesis, God speaks, let there be, and therefore God accomplishes his great purposes through his word. Hebrews 1 will also tell us that all things are held together by the word of his power. Thirdly, why preaching is such an appropriate thing for God to favor is because of the nature of the revelation of God. The revelation of God. For as, as early in biblical history as you can trace back, the way that God made himself known to his people is through speech. He made Adam, he spoke to Adam. He called Abraham. He spoke to Noah. He promised things to Moses. He is a speaking God. That's how he shows himself. So, so, so tiny is the amount of times in Scripture that there's a seeing of something of God that has really any significance to, to the communication. Really, the power of it is the words given to explain and to speak. God reveals himself invisibly through words primarily. Also is the covenant of God. Number four, the nature of the covenants of God make preaching such an appropriate tool for God to use. From the earliest pages in Genesis and then every prophet of the Old Testament, God has communicated his personal promises, which is what a covenant is, promises to a group of people through speech. He comes to them, he speaks promises to them about their personal relationship that he is having with them. Fifthly, the reason that God loves preaching and has ordained it for his primary use is also in light of the incarnation of God. When God came into our nature, it is not said that glory became flesh. We are told that the word of God became flesh, that the communication of God comes along the word. And when God was in flesh, what's the job that he had? Don't say carpenter. Don't say carpenter. The job that Jesus had as a boy, as a teenager, yes, a, a carpenter. But what was he ordained and anointed to do? He was, he was a preacher. He had one son. He sent him to earth and made him a preacher. Why not a king? Why not a priest? Why not a shepherd? No, a preacher. Because God communicates through words spoken to his covenant people. Sixthly, the reason preaching is just so appropriate is because of our image of God. The nature of our image of God is that we are made like God. He is a communicative, personal being. He has made us to be communicating personal beings. The history of technology, I'm, 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 I'm convinced of this, the history of human technology, technological advance throughout history is basically who can create the best and most efficient forms of communication. Communication is enormous in our world. You, you've got, a, you've got an, almost an infinite, powerful communication box sitting in your pocket. It is communication that humans are so addicted to because we're made in the image of the personal communicating God. And so preaching is a personal address communicating personal promises from a personal God to personal hearers about a personal covenant. That's what preaching is. And seventhly, the reason that we should be convinced that God is so committed to preaching as that primary means is because it is the first act that the Holy Spirit inspires a man to do when he comes down to the church. The very first thing we see happen when the Holy Spirit comes upon the church is preaching in tongues and then preaching being explained. But the tongues... The, the, the mighty works of God being proclaimed through miraculous tongues was just to draw the crowd for the sermon. That's all it was. Everybody ran forward. What the heck is going on? Now that you're here, hear it in English. It wasn't English then. Hear it in English so that you understand. The very first thing that the Spirit, eager to be poured out on the covenant people of God, does is inspire a Christ-centered sermon. And therefore, look at verse 40. Peter stands expounds scripture, exalts Jesus, and exhorts people to believe in him. Verse 40. And with many other words, in other words, with a really long sermon, I'm always, I'm, I try to be biblical as often as I can, <coughs> with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. 
And so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. It is preaching that God loves to bless. The very first thing that happens in the life of the church on conquest is the Spirit fills a man to preach and then seals that with 3,000 souls coming to the exalted Lord Jesus Christ. Last week, on the 30th, 30th of September, marked the 252nd year since the death of George Whitfield. And if he was known as anything, he was known as a preacher. He would, he, would give, he would give preaching sermons in the open air to tens of thousands of people, not with this little, this little soft thing called a microphone, but with his open, I need to put it back on or you won't hear me, uh, I'm no Whitfield, or, or any kind of amplification, but a screaming voice empowered by the Holy Spirit, tens of thousands would hear him as he traveled Wales and England and, and even America, and God brought great revival through a man who could do little else than stand up and extol people to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. When he was 55, his asthma was catching up with him. He was, he was very close to death, and he, he, got a, he got an invitation. He had on his bedside two pieces of paper, one order from the doctor, don't leave your room, don't preach, you're dying, and one other piece of paper, please come and preach to us up in Massachusetts. That's not where it was. It was in England, I think. Let me get that one right. <clears throat> Yeah, yeah, in Newburyport, in America. Two pieces. Now, which one's he going to read? Which one does he want to hold as he walks into the glorious presence of Jesus? My doctor told me to slow down or I was invited again to exalt Jesus. This preacher takes up that invitation and he travels all Saturday long to get up to the appointed place of preaching. And on the way, he's passing through a village filled with, with people. And there's, a, there's a huge light, like the queen, but I think more glorious. When she would travel through country towns and everybody would come to watch and see. And it was in this town that years ago, uh, uh, Whitfield had led an enormous revival. And so there's thousands of people here who know Jesus because this guy devoted his life to preaching and they flocked the field. And he said, stop, hold the carriage. We must tell them about Christ again. And they set up the little carriage, but he was too weak. He, he did what he would normally do when he was too weak and sick. And he sat down and his, uh, his friend, Mr. Smith, got up to preach. But he prayed, and he prayed, Lord, if you would, give me the strength to preach to the people again. And, and, and with the help of, of a few burly men, he was, he was, uh, uh, Smith was tapped on the shoulder, he was put down, and, and Whitfield was propped up on top of a barrel and, and held there by men, and, and he prayed. He said, Jesus, if it would please you, give me one last filling of the Spirit to now extol these people. And the people who were there that day said that it was nothing short of, of miraculous. He says, if I have not yet finished my race, my Lord Jesus, let me go and speak for thee once more in the fields. Seal thy truth. Let me come home and die. I am weary in thy work, but not of thy work. The people there that day said, the Holy Spirit seemed to descend upon him and he grew strong enough to preach for two hours on the text. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Now, you might think the ending of the story is that saying amen, he fell and saw Jesus, but he was, he was stronger than before he stood up. He sat back in his carriage. He, he rode to the place that he was staying the night before his preaching in the morning, and, and as he was being helped to bed, the whole house had sort of uh, done their prayers for the evening, and he was being helped up the stairway, lit by candles, and he said, stop, stop, this, this reminds me of a pulpit. And he turned around, he sat down, and he preached a whispering sermon, asthma attacks closing his lungs to the people in the house there that night. Then he, he went up to his bed, woke with, with quivering lungs at 3 a.m., suffocating, and by 6 a.m., he was in the presence of his king. He knew what we ought to know from Peter this day. God loves to bless the preached word. Hundreds of thousands of people know the Lord Jesus and with Whitfield right now, because Whitfield's preaching was blessed of God to their salvation. This is what the church can learn from Acts chapter 2 as we close. As a church partaking in the great conquest of Christ across all the promised land that is called earth, we must know that the last days, first of all, the last days have been inaugurated 
The kingdom of the Messiah is established and it is breaking through into this world and we must urgently proclaim, secondly, that Jesus Christ has lived, died, resurrected and been enthroned as Lord and Savior to give salvation and repentance to all who come to God through him. And thirdly, we must commit ourselves to preaching. We must believe both theologically and practically that the thing that God blesses the most in extending the reign of his son, the thing that Jesus ordains most for the building of his church, the thing that the church must commit itself to as we walk in step with the spirit is the hearing, the sharing, the proclaiming, the preaching of Jesus Christ and him crucified. If you're outside of Jesus, if you are not saved, then this is your time to hear and be saved. The, the day is upon us. This is the day of salvation. This is a, the period in world history that God has blessed you with the knowledge of the gospel, that he lived for you, died for you, and can now forgive you. Come to him, place your faith in him alone, and you will be saved with free and full forgiveness. Let's pray. God, we exalt you. We thank you. We glorify you for this beautiful message that we heard through Peter in the reading of your word. Through the encouragement that we receive in understanding that your Savior has come. We are not waiting anymore for the Messiah. We're not waiting anymore for your, your grand and glorious purposes, but we can know you. We can, each one of us, be filled with your Spirit because of the gracious, the glorious work of Jesus. Lord God, I pray that we would be in right mind. This would not merely be theology, but let it be clearly understood theologically. It would not merely be teaching, though let the teaching kick us in the heart. Lord, that it would not merely be practical points of an applicable sermon, though let us hear them, but it, it would be life. That this would be how we live, that this would mark us, Lord God, as a church, that Hope Reformed Baptist Church, whether, whether our name is buried in the dust, whether our, our names are entirely forgotten, let us, Lord, be known. Let our mark on history be that we would let not a day go by where souls did not hear about the risen Lord, Savior, Atonement, Redeemer, Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Lord, where there are people here today, under the sound of the word, would you convert them? Where they are here, but they are not in Christ. If they have ears, that are not spiritual, if they have eyes that see Jesus as anything other than Savior, Lord, would you give to them the new heart that gives them new eyes, that gives them new ears to see, to hear, and to savor, to love and desire the Lord Jesus Christ? Would you give them faith so that they can be added to our number, Lord God, more and more, each week, each day, each month, those who are being saved because we see ourselves as those who are on mission. We see ourselves as those who are in the conquest for the Lord Jesus Christ, our glorious Savior, in whose name we pray. And everybody said, Amen.